If love and happiness are the spice of our fondest memories, then food is the stock on which they're built. And that's because flavor and aroma can, unlike almost anything else, effortlessly transport us across space and time. If you've ever awoken to the smell of sizzling bacon or brewing coffee, you know exactly what I mean. Those foods sear themselves into our brains and lock in the comfort of our kitchens and the smiling faces of the people we love. We've all got foods that stand out in our memories. They act as a kind of experiential ledger chronicling the episodes of our past. For me, the smell of coffee never fails to bring me back to my grandmother's kitchen. We'd always be up before the rest of the house, and we'd talk and laugh and sip from her quirky, handmade ceramic mugs. Foods become metonyms for what we've known and who we are. In Western Kentucky, the line between family and neighbor is often blurred. Parents and grandparents, friends and family all help with the kids and with the cooking. Folks have to pull together, because there's often not that much to go around. Shelley Turner Toombs, born in Frankfort, Kentucky in the late 60s, well, for her, her grandparents did the most to help her through the lean times. For all of her childhood, there was one flavor that showed up every time her grandparents were around. Coca-Cola. Oh, and Shelly? She happens to be my mom. I'm Patrick Perini, and this is Course Ground. When we were growing up, uh, we weren't allowed to have soda. Mom didn't let us have soda, not only because it wasn't good for us, but mom couldn't afford it. So it wasn't like we could just go out and buy a soda someplace. When Pop first bought that house, they lived on the left side, the left side of the house. When I was born, we were living there, and Dad was in Vietnam. It was my first home. Nanan and Pop always had soda around, Coke and Sprite. 
they'd mix bourbon with it, <laughs> uh, which I did, didn't do. When I was young, young, I could only have it after I finished my milk after dinner. And I learned to rinse my glass because if you put Coke in a cup that's had milk in it, it doesn't taste very good. So, so I learned to rinse my glass and then I'd have Coke and it was kind of like dessert. As I got, got older and mom wasn't around as much when I was at Nan and Pops, the Coke was just there and it came in 16 ounce bottles, I think, tall Coke bottles. They were green. We'd drink a Coke and we'd put the bottle out on the back porch and the, the containers would go down the steps. When dad came back from Vietnam and he told mom to move out of the house because I think he felt like Nan Nan was kind of controlling. We'd go there at night and sleep and then during the day we'd go back to Nan Nan's. <laughs> we had these little, um, tiny little glasses that jelly came in when I was little. And after we ate the jelly, we'd keep them for juice glasses. And they were tiny. They were probably six inches tall um, and maybe had a three inch diameter. They were just tiny. I got really good at pouring Coke so the foam didn't foam up over the top of the glass. And I, <laughs> I would pour it slowly enough that it would, um, you know, fizzle, but it wouldn't get the big get head on it like a beer does and go over the side of the glass. So I was pretty good at that. My father left us when I, when I was six. Uh, we had moved to Maryland and we were there for probably not even six months, and he met somebody else and he left. He told my mom that he would pay her $300 a month for child support. And if she wanted more, he would leave the country and she wouldn't get anything. She was pretty much living on $300 a month. So we didn't have anything. Nana and Pop helped a lot. They bought all of our Christmas presents. And Nana would take us to the mall every summer and buy our school clothes for us. And that was always fun. And Pop did okay. I mean, he managed the AMP for 40 years, and then he worked in a liquor store. And I remember <laughs> I'd go and I'd hang out with Pop while he was working. He'd give me a Coke, and if I didn't feel like going in, 
been hanging out with him. Sometimes I'd just ride my bike around town. His liquor store had a drive-thru. And I'd go through the drive-thru on my bike. <laughs> and I'd stop and he would, he'd hand me a, a cold can of Coke and a piece of bazooka bubblegum. And so I connected that wonderful Coke taste with the anticipation of seeing my grandparents. Does that make sense? Coca-Cola, in the 130-some years since its inception, has exploded into one of the most recognizable flavors on the planet. In fact, if you're listening to this, odds are you've had a Coke in your life. And if you're like me, you've had a lot of Coke in your life. But for many of us, like it is for Shelly, Coke's mimetic flavor makes it a strong trigger for recollection. Maybe it's tied to something or someone key in your childhood, or maybe it just drums up imaginative glimmers of idyllic Christmas Eves, with presents piled high under a tree and snow floating softly by a frosted window. In fact, if your interpretation of Santa Claus features a red suit, chances are you have the Coca-Cola company to thank. Nice bit of viral marketing, that. But Coke isn't the only flavor to so quickly anchor itself in our memories. The wood-smoked savor of barbecue, the bitter bite of coffee, tea, and chocolate, the strong perfumes of cinnamon and cardamom, and the vanillins and tannins of whiskey and rum all have the uncanny ability to light up our brains with powerful memories. And like many of those things, the origins of Coca-Cola have traveled a long way from grove to glass. The name Coca-Cola comes from the two key flavorings in the original beverage, coca leaf and cola nut. And they both come from very different parts of the world. The cola nut, for which an entire class of soft drinks, colas, are named, are grown almost exclusively in Central West Africa. Although some varieties are grown in Turkey and even the Italian peninsula. But right from the tree, cola pods contain around half a dozen individual cola nuts. These nuts are wrapped in a white outer shell or testa, which when breached reveals the inner brick red nut. Now if you think this pod configuration sounds similar to those which give birth to chocolate, you'd be absolutely correct. Cola is a close cousin of the Abrama cacao or the cocoa tree. In fact, the two major stimulants found in cacao Caffeine and theobromine are the primary chemical agents of the cola nut. Ancient Aztecs harnessed these compounds by turning the cacao pods into a frothy beverage called chocolatl, which powered their vast empire up until the 16th century. Now, unlike cacao, cola's West African cultivators chew the nuts for a more mild and consistent stimulation. 
Across the Atlantic, high in the Andes Mountains, people chew a very different plant to much the same effect. Coca leaves. Coca leaves, however, are completely devoid of caffeine and theobromine. So how do they do the same thing? Well, their active ingredient is an alkaloid known far and wide as cocaine. Coca leaves grow on trees approximately 7 to 10 feet tall, which sport branches all the way to the base. The leaves are ovoid, short, they almost resemble tea leaves. And when chewed, the trace cocaine found in each leaf acts as a potent stimulant, hunger suppressant, and painkiller. And it was really cocaine's painkilling effect that led John Pemberton to invent Coca-Cola in 1886. Pemberton, a retired lieutenant colonel of the American Confederacy, was seeking a replacement for morphine. He developed the habit in a response to a particularly nasty saber wound in the war. But when an act of Congress forced him to relinquish his earliest alcohol-based coca wines, he opted instead for a more common tonic base at the time, cola nut extract. So Coca-Cola was sold for some time as a bitter, alkaline, cocaine-heavy cure-all. But over time, drug prohibitions and market forces conspired to rid the beverage of both of its original flavorings. Today, Coca-Cola's exact flavors are highly secret and obfuscated behind a natural and artificial flavors facade. Chemical testing has failed to find any of the chemical compounds unique to either coca leaves or cola nuts, so it's likely that they've been replaced with other flavors derived from a menagerie of organic and inorganic materials. Whatever the precise combination, they've been able to replicate it en masse as Coca-Cola has been licensed for distribution in every country on Earth, except Cuba and North Korea, cementing its status as one of the most recognizable flavors worldwide. It's doubtful that Pemberton, in his efforts to stem his opiate addiction, ever imagined that his medicine would become one of the world's most popular beverages. But really, that's the nature of culture, and especially of food. As we tinker and replicate and consume each other's work, it becomes part of our own memories, part of our own narrative, which in turn become our identities.
Um, thanks so much for, for sharing that story. I'd love to, love to ask you a couple of questions. What is the best way to drink a Coke? Um, McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Why, why, why McDonald's? Okay, so when we were living in Maryland and we would, you know, three, four, five times a year go back to Kentucky, um, that was the only time we ate out because mom couldn't afford to eat out with us. On the way to Kentucky, we would always stop and get McDonald's. And on the way back from Kentucky, because Pop would give us each $5, and he'd say, don't spend it all in one place. <laughs> but we would stop at McDonald's and get something to eat. Their Coke was so good. So then, as I got older and I could afford to buy a Coke, of course, I'd go to McDonald's to get a Coke, because they have the best Cokes. So you've mentioned that your mom couldn't afford to take you out to eat, and you've mentioned that, at least for a little while, she was raising you and, and your siblings on, on your dad's $300 a month child support alone. That seems pretty low. I don't think she worked. When he left, she went back to school to uh, get her master's degree, I guess, so she could make more money teaching. We didn't have anything that our friends had. And we lived in a pretty good neighborhood, very professional. The family that lived next door to us, he was a doctor. There were two, uh, a husband and wife who lived a few houses down from us. They were both lawyers. So it was a, it was a good neighborhood. So, Growing up, I saw all of my neighbors and all of my friends, you know, wear the Jordache jeans and wear the Calvin Klein jeans and just the things that, that we couldn't afford. Why she didn't move, I don't know. She could have probably have moved to a cheaper neighborhood. I don't know if dad had any, you know, don't move them or whatever, I don't know. Um, but he was never around. Like once he left, he left. And we were supposed to see him every other weekend, but he would not come around. We didn't see him very often at all. So we were just kind of the poor kids in the nice neighborhood and just couldn't afford things that people take for granted. But then every Christmas, every Easter, all summer long for, until I got into high school, pretty much, um, we'd go back. So what else did you do with your grandparents? Pop taught me to fish, took me fishing very often. He had a friend who had a boat, and we'd go out there and he had a, a red cooler and he would put in the cooler ice and cans of coke and um, Vienna sausages <laughs> and sardines and premium crackers and we'd go fishing and I would drink a coke out on the lake and I would eat 
I would take a Vienna sausage out of the tiny little can and spread it on a cracker <laughs> and eat that and drink a Coke while we were fishing. So it was tied to my love for my grandfather. Okay, so other than McDonald's, what's the best way to drink a Coke? The best way to drink a Coke, a can of Coke that's been sitting in an ice cooler that's just almost frozen. Can't have the slush consistency, but right before you get to that slush point, and it's the best feeling in the world. You just pop it, it's cold, it tastes good, it's sweet. You're on the banks of a river fishing. <laughs> just, yeah, I think that's the best way to drink one if you don't have money to go get one from a, from a McDonald's. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Oh, absolutely. It was fun, and I love talking to you. Course Ground is a show about the ways in which food impacts our lives. This episode's guest was Shelley Turner Toombs. If you don't want to miss the next episode, subscribe to the podcast using the app of your choice. If you don't want to miss anything, be sure to follow Course Ground Pod on Twitter. I know Shelly said that the best way to drink a Coke is ice cold from the fishing cooler, but I, I think there might be room for a cocktail. We'll keep things simple. All you're going to need is a Coke, preferably Mexican Coke, which uses the less sweet cane sugar over the high fructose corn syrup, and some quality Kentucky bourbon. For tradition's sake, we'll use Buffalo Trace, which is distilled just a few miles from Nana and Pop's house. Make sure your Coke is ice cold. The colder the Coke, the less it'll flatten when it meets the whiskey. If there's a trick to this drink, it's about minimizing how flat the Coke gets when you bring it all together. Then take a 10 ounce old fashioned glass and add two large ice cubes. Then pour over two ounces of bourbon. Take the glass, turn it about 45 degrees, and slowly add eight ounces of your Mexican Coke. Now, go slowly here, because the slower that you go, the less likely it is to fizz out, the less likely you're gonna have a flat drink. Order matters too. If you try to pour the bourbon over the Coke, it's just gonna flatten it, and you're gonna have a flat drink. Stir one to two times and enjoy.
I'm Patrick Perini, and this has been Course Ground. <laughs>